This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello and welcome to Series 5, Episode 4 of Out with Susie Ruffle. Hello. I hope that you're having a good week, whatever you're doing. Um, I'm, I've had a very chilled weekend. I've been doing some writing. I did a few shows at the Comedy Store over the weekend. That was fun. I thought they were going to be quite rowdy, but they actually weren't. They were really, they were really nice gigs. And now I'm, I'm just taking a moment on a Sunday when it's quiet in the flat to record my uh my intro to this week's episode um i'm really excited to share it with you uh it's a brilliant conversation with the fantastic chef zoe ajonia uh, i really hope that you enjoy it i'm sure that you will but as always i share some of your emails that's that's what this bit of the show is about if you want to get in touch you always can please do uh the email is hello at with com. i always want to hear from you and yeah let's let's share one right now shall we hello susie My name is Felix. I am a 28-year-old gay trans man from Sweden. I've been meaning to write for you for a while to tell you how much I adore and appreciate this podcast and to share a bit of my own story as well. The thing I love so much about this podcast is that every single episode makes me feel so much more connected to the queer community because no matter what age, nationality or flavour of queer your guests are, there's always something in their experience or feelings that I can relate to. I find this especially relatable how Queer as Folk was such a meaningful show to so many of us growing up. I remember seeing it on television for the first time at 13 years old and recording every episode on VHS just so I could watch it over and over again. I first came out the closet as bisexual when I was nine years old. Only to my friends though. I had pretty much known since birth there was something different about me. It would take a while before I had the language to actually figure out what that was. As a nine-year-old, coming out as bisexual felt like a step in the right direction because it was the only queer label that felt available to me. I knew that I only really liked boys, even though everyone considered me a girl at the time. I just knew in my soul that I didn't like them in a heterosexual way. When I was 12 years old, I came across an article in a magazine about a Swedish support group for trans people. I felt strangely drawn to the article, but I had no idea why. The person they interviewed for the article was a trans woman. And I don't think I really knew yet that trans men existed as well. It wasn't until a year later when I was 13 that everything clicked. I found a blog run by a teenage trans boy and I instantly knew that I was the same as him. I could physically feel it in my body that this was it. So I got in touch with the boy and he was kind enough to give me some information and share some helpful links. I came out to my friends shortly after that and started living openly as Felix at school as well. When I finally came out to my parents, I was 14 and it didn't go very well. 
But despite their feelings on the matter, they never stopped me from legally changing my name and starting my gender assignment process at the age of 16. In Sweden, all trans people who want to get hormones and surgery and change their legal gender must go through a gender assessment process to get a trans diagnosis. The assessment took two years and when I was 18, I finally got my testosterone and did my top surgery. When I was 18, I also moved away to a different town to study for three years. I never intended to hide the fact that I was trans in my new school because... I didn't think that I was passing well enough yet, but I soon realized that I was passing better than I expected. So I sort of accidentally went stealth. Since I hadn't planned on going stealth, I remember having to quickly erase all traces of trans talk on my social media accounts. Even though it was unplanned at first, going stealth was so liberating for me. I'd figured out I was gay a few years earlier, so it felt good to just be an openly gay man and not having to deal with any form of transphobia. I was just Felix, an out and proud gay guy, nothing more. I ended up spending seven years hiding the fact that I was trans from everyone, except for my family and friends who had known me since I was a child. It felt like the right choice most of the time, even though I sometimes desperately wanted to tell some of my friends. I often felt guilt and shame about hiding that part of my life from people that I had such beautiful and deep friendships with. Finally, one night in 2018, I had a bit of a breakdown. I was in my apartment scrolling through Facebook before bed when I came across an article written by a trans man. In the article, he talked about how he'd gone from hating his body to finally accepting that he was never going to be a cis man and how that acceptance had led to him finally loving his trans body. That article made me realise that I hadn't only spent several years hiding my trans identity from other people, but I'd also been hiding it from myself. I was so full of internalised transphobia that I had done everything I could to separate myself from being trans. I had nothing against other trans people, I just didn't see myself as one of them. Even when I went to take my hormone injections every three months, I would sort of pretend that I was taking some other random medication. I cried for hours after reading that article. I cried myself to sleep every night for a week after that. And when I was done crying, I was finally ready to start working on accepting myself. And I was finally ready to start telling people that I was trans. I was incredibly nervous though. I was so scared that my friends would hate me for keeping the secret for so many years. I was very lucky though. My friends were very surprised, but they took it very well. They were so sweet and supportive, which gave me the courage to finally come out publicly on Instagram in the summer of 2019. I received a lot of love and support after that as well. I got messages from old colleagues and friends that I hadn't spoken to in ages and they were all absolutely wonderful. Despite the fear and stress, I have no regrets about keeping my trans identity secret for all those years. It was what I needed and it was worth it. And let's not forget that it wasn't until I was in my early 20s that trans people actually started becoming visible in a significant way. I think one of the main reasons that I finally felt comfortable telling people I was trans was because that I knew my friends would actually understand what a trans person is. It's been a tough journey, but today I can finally say that I love being a gay trans man. It's not always easy, especially considering how much transphobia there is in the gay community, but I can honestly say that if a magical fairy came along and offered to make me a cis man, or even alter my body so that it looked exactly the same as a cis man's body, I would say no thanks. I've made all the changes I want to make, and I love my body exactly how it is now. I know this email is very long and it might not be shared on the podcast, but I still want to say that if you do decide to read it out, you are welcome to use my name. Thank you for taking the time to read this. I did my best to keep it as short as possible, if you can believe that. Have a great day. And that's from Felix. Felix, I'm so touched that you took the time to send me uh, this this message and to share your story with, with uh, the community that listens to this podcast. Yeah, I loved sharing that. And you sound like a great guy. You really do. 
and um, I wish you all the best. Right, let's have one more. Um, oh, also, Felix, um, you might be pleased to hear this. I've got a trans guy coming up on the podcast in a couple of weeks. And so uh, that's a story that we've not yet shared on this podcast, which I've been trying to do for a while. But um, yes, yeah, so I, I really hope that you especially enjoy that episode. Right, uh, let's have another one before we get into today's conversation. Hi, Susie. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for your podcast and the many ways in which it's helped me flourish within myself. I've always been quite an introspective person and I've really relied on the chances I get to properly allow myself quietness. But due to my imminent A-levels and the worsening of my previous mental health problems, I have felt those opportunities taken away from me and my life has become quite overwhelming. Getting through nights without some sort of breakdown was becoming increasingly difficult and I could see the effect it was having on my family as well. But a few months ago, I decided during the aftermath of a particularly bad emotional episode to watch some of your comedy clips on YouTube, as I always found your non-judgmental energy to be just what I needed. This led me to your podcast, which has really helped me on numerous occasions to feel less alone and less judged. I can turn it on and suddenly I have 45 minutes of mental quiet and hearing the stories of others puts my life into perspective and allows me to come out of my existential bubble for a while and focus on the good in the world. You've also helped me enormously with accepting my queer self. I always knew I was attracted to women in my head, but if I chose to follow that path, a normal existence would not follow. The idea that queer women could be queer, but also married and have children and be successful was alien to me. And I resigned myself to being single forever to avoid the disappointment and shame, or to instead have a loveless marriage with a man so I could at least have a life that everyone else expected of me. I hated the idea of being put in a box and I was terrified of letting myself out of that same box. But you have allowed me to realise that being queer is not scary or wrong, that I can be part of this community and still have agency and control over my life. I feel so free now that I can let myself be myself. I don't need to worry about labels or expectations or all of the what ifs. I can just let my life roll out as it was meant to be and take everything step by step. My personal queerness is unique to me and it cannot be defined by other people. Things are fluid as well and it's okay to be part of the beauty of queer life. The variety and freedom of this community you have helped me find is truly wonderful. Thank you so much. Now you haven't said whether I can share your name so I'm not going to because you might not want me to. But thank you for saying such kind things. I'm always so touched when people say such lovely things about this podcast. And um, yes, I'm the one that, that's doing the interviewing and um, organising it and stuff. But the people that are really fantastic are people that take the time to come on the show. Everyone that I invite on the show, they're always super busy people that have so much on and they carve out a little hour for this podcast. And so I really appreciate you saying such kind things to me, but it's really them that have shared their stories with this podcast community. But thank you. Thank you for saying such kind things. I really, really appreciate it. And I love that you enjoy my comedy as well. Okay, shall we get on to today's conversation? It's with the brilliant Zoe Ajonia. I hope that you really enjoy it. I love this conversation. I hope that you will too. And here it is. Listener, I'm very excited for today's conversation. Zoe Ajunya is a writer, cook, and founder of Zoe's Ghana Kitchen, a Ghanaian pop-up restaurant brand, and the title of her debut book, which I have right here. Um, If you're interested to know, I have been having a go at a few different things previous to this conversation. Last week, I made a coconut rice pudding with fried plantain and toasted coconut, which I'm not sure if it's in the book, but you put it up on your Instagram page, and it was... (laughs) 
utterly delicious <laughs> go on Zoe's Instagram have a look at it and then have a go at making it it was surprisingly easy I always think I'm going to really bugger up those things but it was easy and brilliant and I loved it brilliant. Zoe not only shares the beauty of West African food she also encourages you to understand its heritage and journey all the while encouraging sustainability and an awareness of making good purchasing choices that directly supports West African co-ops and farms you might be aware of Zoe from her supper clubs pop-up kitchens her previous Brixton restaurant or the aforementioned book which Nigella Lawson said this book is a joy from start to finish and if we can't trust Nigella who can we really trust I am absolutely delighted to chat to her today welcome to the show Zoe Yay! yay what a lovely intro thank you so much Susie thanks for having me oh my absolute pleasure I'm really loving having a go at some of the things from your book yeah that's it yeah having a go it's all about that having a go you know I mean, I know that you would have written it with an aim for this, but it is really accessible for someone who has never cooked anything like that before. Oh, thank you. Because I got the book and I was like, I must have a go. I must have a go before I speak to Zoe because it's you know so nice of you to come on the show. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, I can do this. Am I brilliant at this? <laughs> <laughs> Am I actually a chef? <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Because, yes, you know, that, that was the challenge with that cookbook was like... Well, there was a lot of challenges, honestly, but that was one of the main challenges mm-hmm. was to like, how do I translate my love and my passion mm-hmm. and my relationship with this food in a way that makes it attainable, achievable, approachable. And at the same time, it's like, it, it was a difficult one, right? Because it, it was the first cookbook of its kind in the UK. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of like the hand hold, holding kind of piece where there's a lot to explain, but you don't want to be like talking down to Ghanaians and West Africans. So you have had to really balance that. And I wanted yeah. to balance like the tradition with the more sort of new models of what where I think the cuisine is going. You know, some might call that fusion. Yes. There's a huge movement in fusion African cuisine right now. At the time, I thought fusion was a bit of a dirty word, so I didn't want to have anything to do with it. But, you know, essentially quite a lot of the book is that. It's like the extrapolation of the flavours, the essence of the cuisine, and getting people to bring that into their everyday lives in a really easy, low-lift kind of way. So your review there is perfect. (laughs) Oh, great. Well, I'm pleased to hear that. (laughs) I'm pleased to hear that because I read sort of a few different articles that you've done when you've been chatting about food and something that really came up which is potentially ignorant of me that I've not considered before is how much so many other cuisines from different cultures are just sort of a staple now in British diet Mm. when it comes to like Italian or curry although curries can be from all sorts of places but you know certainly Indian cuisine and Japanese cuisine now like you know maybe 10 years ago that had a real moment and uh, you were saying that you know you're hoping that you know it won't be too long until sort of jollof rice is something that all types of families across the UK, regardless of their heritage, are tucking into exactly yeah. on an evening. No, yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, like I said, that you know, I started Ghana Kitchen in 2010, and it was like I was baffled. Honestly, it's like why don't people know about this? Mm. I was avoiding getting into food, honestly, for two years. It was like when I started this, it was like this fun. It was like a fun side hustle while I was doing my MA at Goldsmiths. Did um, you do it too? To fund your writing, yeah. your, your writing studies? Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't know that I had a lot of control over any of the first five years of Ghana right, Kitchen, okay. honestly. It was just uh, this opportunistic moment outside my front door during Hackney Wicked Festival. And I was like, there's nowhere for people to eat. I'm broke. Everybody loves this thing I make. I'm going to make it and see if mm-hmm. I can, like, you know, make some pennies. <laughs> and I did. And then suddenly 
it just kind of blew like really, really quickly, very organically with people just wanting me to do it again and again and again. And at the time I was um, getting the courage, I will say, to explore a creative life mm-hmm. and going in to do the MA at Goldsmiths and creative and life writing. And there was this beautiful kind of serendipitous moment where I basically took t- two years off from the real world <laughs> and I spent it writing and reading and doing supper clubs, you know, mm. magical, the best two years of my life, I've got to say. Um, and during that time, you know, the concept sort of captured people's imaginations because it was the first time somebody was approaching this food in a contemporary way. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time, I suppose, people had a space to experience it outside mom and pop shops, which weren't necessarily lending themselves to being approachable outside of the community for a myriad of reasons that are worthy and reasonable and justified. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it kind of, it took me on a journey. Like the universe kind of was like just smacking me around the head with it. This is what you're doing. This is what you're doing. And I was like, okay, I'm doing this then. (laughs) And then over time, it's been like working out, you know, after that first couple of years, it's like, okay, why does this need to exist? There's Mm. such an absence of this on the high street and why, shouldn't people have the same relationship with jollof as they do with, yeah, you know, Indian curry in air quotes, because there's some some argument to be had about, you know, what is curry actually? So, so did you actually have people sort of round to your house? And it was oh, like, okay. so you're in, so it's like really sharing your culture literally from your kitchen. Yeah, absolutely. Like the space I'm in right now, used to just be one big long room and we used to fit 60 people in here yeah do 60 covers twice a night (gasps) bear in mind i used to i had no culinary training i had no restaurant experience i had no hospitality experience really to speak of other than eating out Mm -hmm. (laughs) and like cooking dinner parties so how many dishes did you have was it like this is the dish tonight Oh, I mean, those were like fixed menus. Yeah. Back in those days, it was probably like, you know, family style, Mm -hmm. banquet, long table style, your core dishes that Ghana Kitchen became known for, I guess, in the the first five years, which is the groundnut soup, the red red, um, kinkane fish. So uh, quite a lot of more traditional themes were, were at the heart of the beginning of it. And then as I grew confident as a cook, I started to, and also, honestly, as I ran out of recipes, because <laughs> all I had up my sleeve was what I'd learned from my dad growing up, you know, my menu of eight to 10 items got old pretty quickly for me, at least anyway, you know, but then that became fun as well. Then it was like, I had to go out and learn more. And I did that by going to like all of the markets in London, Ridley Road, Brixton, Peckham, and like, you know, finding out from all the aunties what things were, what they did with them, and then practicing those things, but also thinking about, okay, but what if you did this with it? And like, what if you did that with it? And just seeing where I could take it, you know, and kind of reimagining what a plate of food looks like when it comes to Ghanaian ingredients. And that's when it really took off. And that's when, yeah, the restaurant happened and the cookbook and everything else. So, yeah. And so I know that you grew up, your dad's Ghanaian and your mum's from Ireland. Was there a lot of Ghanaian cuisine in your day-to-day life as, as a child and as a teenager? I wouldn't say we ate Ghanaian food every day. Not Certainly not, no. And, you know, I didn't have, outside of my dad, who was kind of this transient presence in my childhood. When I was very young, the only time those ingredients came into the house was with him. So mm-hmm. he would come and he'd have kenke and shito and tilapia and these amazing 
wild smelling, colorful, strange textures. So it was like, mm. it's a, it was a sensory overload as a kid, you know, and all this, those smells and flavors. But most importantly, it was like his attachment to it that really caught my imagination, I think, because I think mm. the food became a way for me to have this connection with him. And, and as I got older, I could see that that was his connection to home. And so then I got really rooted in it. But as I said, he was quite transient in and out for various reasons we won't go into right now, probably. Mm-hmm. But um, my mum, my Irish mother, was the one who kept that food alive in our house. So she would, so she learned to cook that food because we loved it, you know. And that's what I say, like, uh, you know, the question of what is traditional and authentic is an interesting one for me because the food I ate growing up came from Ghana. So like the ground nut soups, the uh-huh. shitos, the jollof, the red, red, all those things, you know, they were authentic and traditional to me in my house growing up. Right. And then when I took myself off to Ghana in 2013 on like a research recce, but obviously, you know, what I, as a child, what I wasn't understanding was the, the nuance and the flex that comes from my dad's translation and then my mum's translation. Right, of, of course, yeah. And then my translation of both of those things again. Yeah. And so when I took myself back to Ghana, as I say, on this research mission to build out a, rep- a bigger repertoire and also to kind of just get really, because cultural appropriation was on my mind from the beginning of this. Once I decided it was going to be a business, it was like, well, there is a culture here that needs to be protected and I don't mm-hmm. want to be seen to be appropriating it, even though I'm half Ghanaian, because um, it is very easy to do. So I just wanted to have a bit of control over that. And I felt like I needed to ground myself in what is actually traditional so that I could jump from that point, you know? So that's why I went back to Ghana is to like do the traveling, be there on the ground to experience the food and cooking and to learn on the ground. Um, and when I did that and brought it back, I just had this amazing new level of confidence about what is you know, the extrapolation of tradition, because what I knew was that three different women under one house had three different recipes for jollof and all of them swore by it, you know, like this is jollof. And I was like, okay, you know, but it was like each household had their own tradition. And that's still true today. I was just talking to this lovely woman who runs Jaconi Studios in LA and she used to be the hands, you know, I don't know if you remember BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed yeah. Tasty, but back yeah. in the day, they used to only do videos with hands. And she said, and she's Nigerian Kenyan. And she put out a video of a Nigerian recipe that was very traditional to her growing up, you know? And she got slated on the internet by loads of Nigerians critiquing her methodology and all of this stuff, right? Um, And the same has happened with Ghana Kitchen. You know, there's people out there who are purists who, who are like, I didn't, that's not how I had it growing up, so it can't be real. But the truth is, is that both Ghana and Nigeria, they're such huge land masses. And this is the other part to this people don't think about so much. It's like there isn't one Nigerian cuisine, right? There's there's hundreds because it, the landmass is so big and the cultures are so different between tribes. And the same is true in Ghana. So people who eat uh, kenke and fish in the south will have a slightly different way of preparing that food to the to, to way people eat kenke and fish in the north. Do you know what I mean? And presumably um, if you live near the sea or if you live near right. more goats or if you <laughs> live near that must have an impact on exactly. just, not just your day-to-day like what the primary thing that you're eating is but also how you season it how you spice it what's near you exactly must That's, have absolutely. have something to do with it right and the landscape though it's you know it's, it's a wild place um 
not wild crazy, but just like wild in terms of how trans transformative the landscape continues to be when you're traveling through it. You know, it's no, even it's like that in England a bit, right? Mm. You, you go like the south is a bit warmer than the north, and yeah. you know, they have different local fish and they have different. Yeah. Um, all of the local herbs and like when you forage in Manchester, you're going to get different things to when you forage on Hackney marshes. You know? Yeah. So, you know, times that by a thousand in terms of the, the mountainesque scapes and jungle terrain and sort yeah. of dry desert. So there's lots and lots of variety in terms of, yeah. And then I guess taking that from there sort of to you, it's then what you can source in somewhere like you mentioned in the book Ridley Road Market exactly so yeah. I guess that's then an extrapolation of all those things because what can I get here in this market today like there might be different I assume there's different stuff some weeks to others exactly and you've got to just create exactly and you know the seasonality of Ghana comes like through the import <laughs> to, mm. to Ridley Road beneficially for us but um, it has its limitations, but also it's about tying that in then with like what is sustainable and local in the UK at the time. And that's where that fusion started to happen because, you know, we have a responsibility climate wise. Yes. Um, to be mindful of that. So it was like, I kind of wanted to harness what was, like, what's the best of British going on right now with what's the best of West Africa. And that kind of continues to be I mean, I'm not saying that we have a policy of sustainability at Ghana Kitchen, but we kind of do. Um, and that's it. It's like bringing the best of what's seasonal and local around you together and marrying it with what you can get from West Africa. And sometimes, I mean, in the States where I live now, we, you know, I've got a farm growing moringa for us, scotch bonnets, garden eggs, okra, like all the things that I want to put on my menu. I've got a farm growing it for me, you know, so that I can know that I'm keeping it seasonal yeah. and yeah. locally produced and stuff like and it's that a, so, and it's a car ride rather than exactly air miles yeah so all of that yeah and Ghanaian food and also we you know you mentioned cuisines like um like Asian food food has had a massive moment mm. in the UK and um like especially Chinese food for example and mm -hmm. Vietnamese and you, you notice as well it goes with this time it's like generation x all like left uni took a gap year and went over there because, you know, there's all these things, that the intersection of the zeitgeist, the intersection of the affordability of travel, the intersection of culture shifting and people's minds opening, like all of those things have an effect on the food and how it arrives of in course, the UK. Of course, of course it well does. the immigrant story as well, you know, yeah. all of those things. And like African food in air quotes, because we're 54 countries, 54 cuisine. Um, hasn't had that moment but part of that is because it hasn't been a destination for tourism very much right and part of that has been historically I mean and historically of course you know it's a continent that has had a lot of colonizers come and rip its resources away yeah and it's been in a state of survival you know like cultures unlike Italy and France who you know were the colonizers they had this amazing leisurely time <laughs> to explore cuisine and explore food as art right and for joy for joy rather than for sustenance which is what the you know people for the majority on the continent have food has been sustenance you know and it's been a survival more than it's been an art and I'm so happy to see in the last 10 15 years and especially just in the last five years in particular this bursting of colour now when it comes to 
you know, these cuisines really breaking through, especially West African food. It's having such a huge moment now. Mm. Um, so I think we're pretty close. I think like in terms, sorry, all of that is to say, bring it back to what you said at the start, which is, is there a times where I can envisage Jollof being on that as, as available and as readily consumed as curry and yeah i think i can i think most people now will have heard of jollof you know oh for sure yeah i'm i'm pretty bored of talking about jollof it's been 12 years i bet i'm yeah. ready to move on <laughs> but that's you know that's good like me being bored talking about jollof means we've been talking about jollof yeah right? that sure. means that people know about it and more people are cooking it and more people mm. are going out to eat it and there's certainly a hell of a lot more places for people to experience it both on the shelf from cpg and then, you know, dining concepts, whether they're fast casual or fast, fast dining or street food, there is a plethora of opportunities now. You, did you grow up in South East London? Is that right? I did. I don't have T's or H's. That's why. I listen, you I'm, I'm coming to you live from <laughs> Sydenham. So don't worry. When you were growing up, I'm sort of thinking, obviously to do with food as well, but culturally and just and in a way of identity, were you surrounded by other people that were cooking that sort of food at home? Were you surrounded by people that looked like you? Did you feel seen or oh, were no. you? No, quite the opposite. That's what I mean. Right. We didn't have any Ghanaian family right. in London. So I was really, I guess, isolated from that culture, which is why the food became so important. And mm. It became this kind of almost like a linchpin or like this kind of space. And by space, I mean like the time like getting the ingredients, cooking the ingredients, eating the food, that space became like this place in which I connected with that part of my identity and culture. Mm. I spent most, a good deal of my childhood in Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> because it was just there, it was cheap to get to, you know, bob over 40 quid. So I had this really strong sense of the Irishness, right, of who I was. I identified as black Irish until I was, I mean, I still do, I'm black Irish. Mm. Um, but that was like my first kind of, identity like when I was eight nine ten you know Irishness was the first thing I identified with and it was through the food that I got to connect with Ghana and Ghanaian culture so this food has been incredibly important to to me having that relationship and like um, a touchstone yeah touchstone good words yeah and were you in I'm now thinking about your sort of queerness in relation to sort of who you are and growing up and finding as we say like that touchstone for your Ghanaian culture did you feel like you had any touchstones around you for that the queer part of your identity were you seeing anyone that was at all like you I mean you're shaking <laughs> your head because I'm I'm so used to talking to queer women that are a similar age to me and we're all like nah there was no one there was Claire Balding occasionally yeah. <laughs> oh you got Claire I had Sandy Totswick Sandy I love Sandy I got to work, I've worked with her a couple of times now and every time I spend time with her, I, I know that I behave like such a fangirl. I'm like, hello, Sandy, how are you? It's nice <laughs> to see you. Thanks for letting me do your TV show. Yeah, um, no, there was Sandy, there was eventually Ellen, even though yeah. she didn't come out until it was clear what her game was. But yeah. she didn't come out for a bit and then when she did got come out, she got axed, bless. Yeah, right. Then um, there was the kiss. So Anna Friel from Brookside, that was a yes. huge moment. Huge in my teenage years, but no, I was very much in the closet. I spent a bit of time pretending to be bi. I think, mm -hmm. again, there's quite a few of us in my age, in my like 40s, who did that for a minute as this kind of, 
you know, segue, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> even working it out, it was a barefaced lie to protect right, okay. myself from, sure. okay. you know, whatever. But um, no, I was always queer and I always knew it, but I, there was just no one around me. That was lonely. Yeah, mm. that was very lonely. I didn't really come out until I was 18 when I went to uni and I was like, whoop, here we go, you know. Did you turn up? and come out immediately pretty much we we i've pretty spoken to much. some people who yeah who are like almost like on the way they're like i arrive as a gay person <laughs> <laughs> i arrive as someone who is totally fine with the fact that they're gay and no one will know that i've been i'm just gonna turn up as this confident gay and they're gonna love me was there a little bit of that oh for sure i mean i was i think like this at sixth form college towards the end of that which I think sixth form was pretty traumatic actually now that I reflect back on it. But towards the end of that, I started to get a bit more confidence in like asserting that about myself, you know? And by the time I got to uni, you know, it took me, I wasn't supposed to like live away from home, but like, I think within a week I'd pack my bags and I was just going, <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm off to this, the place where I can totally be myself. And where did you go to uni? I went to Greenwich. Right, okay, so only, not, not too far from law. from where you grew up. Not too many stones. Oh, my dad wouldn't let me leave London. That's another story, yeah. But I had a very dominant um, dad, let's just say that. Okay. And, <laughs> and, yeah, going out of London wasn't a thing. And I kind of screwed up my A-levels, to be honest. There was a lot of shit going on at home and blah, blah, blah. I'm one of those people, uh, Susie, that always had the, the tagline of, promising you know <laughs> so much potential <laughs> right but um, they were right oh yeah i got there i'm getting there. there got there in the end but um yeah it was didn't go quite go to plan i was supposed to go to oxbridge but it didn't happen and um i found booze and drugs and all of that and then i was away with the fairies for a while but um anyway all that's to say did law university of greenwich and yeah that was a really really formative part of my well as a university is for anybody isn't it it's like that yeah. time when you start to see oh there's people live in other ways there's mm -hmm. other ways of being you know and oh people people can be themselves and you can have this niche interest and there's other people who have this niche interest also so it was um as well as just meeting people from all over the world was it the first time that you met other queer people or other lgbt people no i had met queer identifying people at college mm -hmm. and I was kind of they were like in the periphery of people I hung around with because we were all right. like up in the margins you know like with the freaks and the geeks and the nerds and we were all on the margins I always hang out with people on the margins they're my people we have more fun out here yeah we do <laughs> <laughs> we're doing life differently babes <laughs> so no it wasn't the first time at all, but I think it was the first time that I, I I felt super confident in my gay identity, and that I would yeah. I, it's that thing like once you come screaming out of the closet, for me anyway, there was kind of no going back. Do you mm -hmm. know what I mean? I, I just got louder and louder and louder in shades of authenticity of who I was over time. You know, so the coming out piece was a huge part of it. For I don't know that's how my life has been like these various seasons i'm going to call them seasons of becoming you know like and you realize something about yourself you realize something about yourself you realize something about yourself 
And it's just this continuous unlocking. And the more there's unlocking happens, the more I reach authenticity. You know, I thought I was an incredibly authentic person my entire life <laughs> until the last couple of years. And I went into recovery and different things. And I realized how much of myself I wasn't showing, you know, and I realized how much I was a people pleaser. And I realized X, mm. Y, and blah, 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 and all the other things that um, can come through the journey to self. So coming out, I guess, was that first part. It's such a shame it happened so late for me. And I'm so overjoyed to see that, you know, young queers don't seem to have the same touch wood, the, the same institutional biases against them like society is just generally much more open and like there's mm -hmm. kids now out at school and like you know yeah. I see I see young boys or girls holding hands and they're yeah. like in a relationship and it honestly like makes my heart melt because it's like Same. wow you have such a beautiful life ahead of you you know because yeah. you're obviously super confident in who you are at this age a big part of the podcast is that people write in and so we have letters from people sort of all over the world. We we also get letters. I mean, I say letters, they are definitely emails. Um, <laughs> from, I've, I've not got like a post bag. People that live in countries where homosexuality is still uh, illegal. And then we also have people that, um, you know, young people that write in that are 13 that say, I'm the president of my LGBT SOC wow. at school. And you go... Oh, I wish I knew you. I, I wish 13-year-old me knew you. I mean, the whole reason I make this podcast is because I wish it existed when I was 12. Yes. That's the whole reason I make it, because right. I just wish that someone had been like, hey, by the way, it's all fine. One day you'll have a wife and you'll be able to have children and you'll be totally fine and you'll have, you'll have a really nice time and you'll have friends that like you. I know. And it's all fine. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. But, and yeah, and part of what I do, what I do is for the same reasons, because yes, there wasn't anybody like me. There wasn't any black women... There wasn't any black chefs on TV, really. I mean, you know, you had Rusty Lee, you had Ainsley Harriet, and God bless them. And thankfully they were there for some semblance of representation, but it was really narrow and specific and very white gazy. Mm -hmm. um, so there wasn't anybody like, you know, shouting for Africa in mainstream media in a positive way. Cause like my experience of Africa through media growing up was famine, war, poverty, yes. disaster, yes. nightmare. AIDS. It was very, very like this one tone of deprivation and, and you know, but quite the opposite to what my exploration of it had been, which is this right. amazing music, this is amazing poetry, this amazing like literature and culture and food. And it's like enjoy. Exactly. So part of it was that as well. You have to see that it's possible. You know, mm -hmm. it's that old cliche about the five minute mile. After that, the, the, the minute mile was broken. People did it a week later. People who yeah. said it was impossible, you know, like, and that's for all of us who were other and different and marginalized and discriminated against. We need to see ourselves in media. We need to see that there is the hope of becoming, right? There's, you, we all need that. And it's refreshing, I think, that society is starting to understand that culture isn't monolithic and it's different for everybody. Different people have different experiences of being and people are different. And all of those differences need to be celebrated, whether it's food culture or queer identity or gender fluidity, whatever it is. What's beautiful about the world we live in is that we all come in these, you know, different shapes, forms, packages, opinions, and collectively we make up, we make up culture we make up the world we make up life and we make up essentially consciousness not to get too woo-woo with it 
But do you know what I mean? And we all need to be seen and heard for ultimately for us all to be able to thrive. You know, mm-hmm. we're starting to peel back so many years, hundreds and thousands of years of opp- oppression. In, in quite a condensed period of time, if we look mm-hmm. at the last hundred years, I mean, women only got the vote like still only a hundred years ago, right? Yeah. Women only got equal rights to finance fifty years ago. Can you believe? I know that? we it's couldn't crazy. have got a mortgage in in like the sixties. I think it is. It's insane. So to see how much progress has happened in fifty years is great, and the last five years amazing. But obviously, there's huge work still to be done. But I like that we're getting on with it now. And it's like less talking and more doing. Did you get to a stage where you thought, well, I'm not seeing anyone like me. I'm not seeing someone that's got my sort of cultural background who is also out and happy with who they are. I guess it's going to have to be me. I don't know that I thought about it in that way, necessarily. Yeah, maybe that's too on the nose. Obviously, in hindsight, yes. Mm-hmm. I think at the time it was more, it wasn't that I considered myself the chosen one. It was more that, as I said, the universe kept insisting. It started whispering and then it just shouted and yelled and screamed. Like, this is what you're going to do. This is what you're supposed to be doing, love. Wake up to it, you know. And I was actually like trying to run away and live this bohemian life in Berlin. But of course, I took a kitchen residency because it was working out for me. So I was like, all right, let's do it in Berlin. And then before I knew it, you know, got descended on with press there and yada, yada. And I was like, what is happening? You know, I wasn't the best cook anywhere, I don't think. Do you know what I mean? But it was about people got carried away with the idea of it and the newness of it and all of this stuff. And I was just kind of almost like this instrument the universe was using for a conversation that needed to be had. Do you know what I mean? And it just so happened that I'm mixed race. I'm, you know, council stock. I'm queer. I have this very bizarre Irish Ghanaian and, you know, I I make up a lot of intersections of what it is to be marginalized. And I think Mm. that, I don't know, the universe was like, yeah, that one, she's going to do this. I think you do yourself down slightly there because I think there's also obviously I haven't eaten your food I would love to but I have I've got involved with the with the recipe book I feel like I've got to know you and I've got a lot of cookery books I really like cooking I'm okay I think (laughs) but I think there's some cookbooks where you're like great this is a recipe and I'm gonna just do this recipe and now I've got a cheesecake a lovely day but I find that there are some where I feel like oh I know a bit about you Mm. I know how you feel about this I think you bring a vibrancy even to like text thank you (laughs) yeah so I feel like you do yourself down by just saying I just happen to be there and I just happen to be all these intersectional things I think I don't know I know that you're being slightly down yourself because that's a very British thing to do it's what we're taught to do well I mean you know look babes I work my ass off don't get me wrong I worked my ass off don't get me wrong and it was lonely (laughs) and it was difficult and it was hard and it was challenging and there was loads of times I wanted to give up and be like what the hell am I doing this for you know did you find that as a queer person as a woman did you ever feel like those things might have slightly held you back it's a game of two halves you know honestly right yes and no because I think inherently because of all of these parts of who I am, there is inherent suspicion. There's an inherent distrust. There's an inherent kind of, you know, because 
of being excluded or disregarded in so many spaces for so long. And don't forget, I didn't get into food until I was in my 30s. It was like very late to the party of hospitality. But I already had all of these experiences in life, in the industry, in work, in like, I I had a lot of life experience. Let's Mm -hmm. just put it that way. And, you know, I'd built an armor, right, to survive because of those experiences. And food, like the when food, when I started, it was passion and fun. And then when it became a business, obviously I had to put down a strategy around it and I had to put down a mission statement and da, 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 da. And then in the act of doing it, of course, when it was very much, and it was centered in my home and my environment and everything I could control, it was lovely and easy and nice. And, but when it started going out into the world and you know the media started getting involved in sort of creating a narrative around who I was, you know, I became attractive then to the media because I'm a light-skinned black woman. I'm queer. I'm this. I tick all of the diversity boxes. Mm-hmm. So I was being like used, right, in air quotes for their diversity matrix. Yeah. But I was complicit in it in a way because I was using them back to <laughs> to have a platform. Yeah, to, to say what, what I needed doing. to say. Not that my, you know doesn't always come through on the edit does it babe? but no. oh, yeah <laughs> but over time I mean I, I don't think there's anyone who would dare misquote me now but you know what I mean so it's a game of two halves it's like yes mm-hmm. there were challenges because of those things and also very niche cuisine like trying to explain that to people when I was trying to take this out of my living room in into like venues mm. I got loads of knockbacks people are like mm, no there's so much you know, nonsense, stereotypes or misunderstandings or just a lack of openness to the idea of it even, you know. Then there's the whole me not being a traditional chef piece and then all the bullshit that comes with that. And do you know what I mean? So I was really on the outsides of that again. So it does put you in a place of defensiveness and protectiveness. And maybe I think for a while I was in very much this kind of scarcity protective mentality but again as I said evolutions right so you go through it you go through the pain you break through you learn you move on you go to the, you know you do it differently next time and and you get more confident and you I got more confident and I became increasingly more authentic as kind of this riposte to all of that I suppose that's something we should all consistently remember through life those moments of you know just continuing yeah because just continuing to be there to be present to be to do it to keep fucking doing it until it's undeniable that that's what you do (laughs) it's about I mean ultimately there was a fearlessness I suppose Mm. I I decided that I mean somebody else described it to me back to me as having the audacity (laughs) and it was like I didn't ever think of it in terms like that but yeah it was quite audacious do you know I mean who am I I've got I've just decided to put African cuisine on the map globally. <laughs> and I'm like, it's <laughs> like kid from Woolwich who like never really settled into any career. He's just like t- diving around the edges of trying to be a creative person, but mostly honestly kind of pushing other people towards their creative paths and helping other people with their business ideas and always being like the connector and the, the advisory council for people and then to to take the leap of faith in myself to put all of that energy into myself but look what happened from that and that's what I mean it's like this 
this lovely journey that life is where we continue to take risks on ourselves. And if we do, right, take risks on ourselves and be fearless about it as much as possible, because it's, I have way more failures than I have successes. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, you know. Oh, me too. Millions. Absolutely. Yeah. And every failure was a point. It's an edge of growth. It was a point mm-hmm. to learn. It was a point to expand. And, and most of those failures were because what I was going for wasn't what was meant for me. You know, it was a distraction. It was going Mm. in the wrong direction of what I was supposed to be doing. And I was like being stubborn about it or, you know, and sometimes it's other times it's like, yeah, you just needed to learn that lesson, babe. Don't do that again, you know, or don't have that kind of business relationship again, or don't hire that type of person again, or, you know, don't work with that editorial or whatever it is. Yeah. it's like you have to do it. You have to be brave and do it. Take the risk. And most of the time I was like, I said yes to everything that came my way. And I had not a Scooby. I had mm. not a Scooby in those first four years of what I was doing. I just learned everything on the job the hard way. But as I said, you know, out of all of those failures, people look at the successes. Who's counting the failures? Nobody apart from me, you know, and I've stopped ages ago. So <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting you're saying about saying yes to everything because there's a real... I think it's a real moment in one's sort of career and it's something that I've only experienced sort of more recently, really. But like the power of saying no to something. Oh, yeah. And being like, oh, that's, that's not for me. That's great. You're like, oh, fucking hell. Okay, I've not taken the money <laughs> and, I've, <laughs> and I've made a decision that's like better for me or for my family or what I think is the right thing to do. I don't want to be, I don't want to be on something with that person. Okay, well, I'm going to not yes. do it. Thank you for saying that because that is the other half of this. And it's like, there is a great book actually by Shonda Rhimes. I love her. What's it called? The Year of Yes or like The Year right. I Said Yes to Everything. It's a very like inspiring and motivational mm-hmm. book for anyone out there who's like not sure of themselves or whatever. Yeah. There is a huge amount of power in that saying yes, yes, yes. yes and being open to receive and being open to like go past your comfort zone. That's all amazing, but there's even more power, as you just said, in learning when to say no mm. and how to say no. It's the bit I'm still trying to learn a little bit better, yeah. but <laughs> but absolutely, like getting that confidence as well to be like, actually, this doesn't feel right for me, like, and just trusting that part instead of because I, I did spend quite a lot of you know between when the cookbook came out in particular between 2016 and 2018, I run myself ragged to the point of ending up in hospital because again, that people pleasing thing and thinking because people wanted me to be in every left thing, left, right, and center that I should be. And then now it's like, eh, if I love the thing, like if I believe in the values that the, the magazine or the podcast or the um, whatever it is, the kitchen, if I believe in the ethos and if the values match, and if I like the people who are doing it and I think that they're authentic and there's a genuine relationship to be had there and there's something worth supporting, then yes. And also if I have time. Yeah. Because sometimes all of those things are true and I still don't have time. So I think over time you get to learn that as well, though. You know, what is a good no and what is Mm. a good yes? I think that's something that you learn through the art of doing it. 
I think it's being freelance as well. Like mm. we're in totally different industries. Being freelance, like there's that thing of like, oh, fuck, this has to work. <laughs> like this has to work because there ain't a plan B. Yeah, yeah. I've poured everything into this. This has got to yeah. work. So getting to that place where you're like, okay, and I'm going to just trust that if I say no to the thing, other things come, things that are more for me, Can more I tell you? up with me. I, at, the, at the start, I mean, I, I used to rant a lot on social media, Twitter in particular. I try not to rant quite so much these days because I'm trying to be a bit more zen. I used to rant consistently a lot about how people don't pay you properly or don't you know, expect you to work for free, yada, yada, yada. And I made a decision at the beginning of 2020 that I just was going to not do that anymore. I'm not going to complain about people underpaying me or low paying me or not paying me because I'm just not going to do it. Mm. And that was hard because at the same time as like the pandemic kicking off and everything like that, but I, I made a choice for myself that made me feel good about the, the person I was going to be in the future. I know that sounds weird, but I was making a choice in the present for who I wanted to be a year mm -hmm. out, you know, and I didn't want to be a person still scrapping around, wasting all my time writing 600 word essays for 50 quid and like complete waste of time and energy and, you know, not perhaps getting the recognition or whatever I thought I deserved. And it's like, do you know what? Just say no. And I said, no, no, no. I said no to some amazing projects and to some good people who are still pissed off with me for the no's I gave them, but that's up to them. But within six months of all of the, the no's, you know, I, in that time I did a community kitchen, I started Black Book, and then the universe did that thing where it sent me much better and bigger opportunities because I've given the space for it, you know? So space yeah. is massive. Yeah. I don't know if you're aware of Travis Alabanza. No. I had them, they're a performance artist and they do incredible stuff, but uh, they're, they're non-binary and queer. And they were saying that the pandemic had forced them to stop. And yeah. because they've always felt like they're running yeah. and trying to keep up and trying to like, got to do it, got to do it, got to do it, got to do it. I'm on the outside, so I've got to keep going, got to just nonstop. Yeah. Because being freelance, feeling like they were on the outside, feeling like there were margins there, also a trans person, just that they had so much going on that lockdown made them stop. Yeah. And then made them reevaluate all of that, which I thought was really interesting and really positive. And a lot of queer people or people that are on the outsides for whatever reason and how they intersect with society. I think it's good to go, you can stop. Yeah, take a You breath. can stop. Yeah. It's really powerful, actually. It's really powerful. And that, yeah, that was like a world reset, wasn't it? Like, mm. again, like the universe is like, yo, <laughs> you lot. <laughs> <laughs> Please. You are, you are fucking up the planets. Yeah. You are killing each other and you are killing yourselves. Let's have a reset. And luckily for me, I mean, I say luckily without any irony here, but that moment where I ended up in hospital at the end of 2019, I literally was on like, I still haven't really processed that, like had the gravity of what that was, what that was, but I was in ICU and they were frightened I was going to die. And I was like, this is weird. Why am I in hospital and nobody knows what's wrong with me? But anyway, I had this time in ICU for five days on my own where I started that process. Like, why am I here? You know, like literally kept saying that, like, why am I here? Like, why am I in this hospital bed? Why am I geographically here? Why am I in this industry? Like, I had that time to start thinking about all of this stuff. So the process for me had already started to begin just before the pandemic. Um, and then the pandemic 
gave me that, as you said, that space to actually stop, like really stop and reevaluate and and re-navigate the path I was on, I suppose. Yeah. And I, I guess, yeah, it has done for so many people. That has been, you know, there have been blessings. I know it's been a horrible, horrible, mm. and it is You've got to find them though. you got to look for them, I think. Yeah, for sure. And now you're in New York. New York. And how's that? That was a terrible accent, sorry, New because <laughs> New York, I love New York. I mean, I've always loved New York. I've been bobbing back and forth to New York is, I don't know, for about 20 years, I suppose. I always dreamed of living there. It's got an amazing energy, mm-hmm. very much suits. Well, interestingly, it very much suits who I was pre-pandemic. That's the funny thing, because it is like hustler energy yeah. in New York, you know. 100 miles an hour, right? But I still love being amongst it, even though I don't mm-hmm. have that same quiet energy myself these days. But I love being there because of, ooh, it's just buzzy. Mm-hmm. So now, yeah, I'm, I'm living, my wife and I are living at the uh, the grace and favour of my in-laws uh, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan in a, it's a very nice situation, but it has a time limit coming soon, which I think we're, um, we definitely need to, to move on. Do you think you'll stay in the States? Yeah, I think, yeah, for a bit. So like one of the pieces here is like why I moved to the States in the first place was because it became apparent to me as well. Like this is goes hand in hand with this evaluation part, right? And how I was consistently underpaid or not, not paid or mm. blah, blah, blah. And my experience in the States was really different. Like people liked my voice, like as is, right? I wasn't being asked to temper it or dilute mm. it or strain it through any filters or anything. So like I always have been able to feel like my authentic self in America. Mm. I think they have a different appreciation for that kind of really like just real authenticity. Do you know what I mean? They Mm. want it raw. They want the real person. They don't want any yada yada. Whereas I felt like that wasn't necessarily the case so much in the UK. I wanted to be a sugar coated version of everything for a very specific audience. And, you know, I'm just not about that really. And then also there's just many, many more expansive opportunities for me as a writer, as a cook, as an entrepreneur, um, as somebody who works in DNI and cares passionately about the various mm-hmm. parts of that. And, you know, the work that I want to do in the world, I'm doing in America. I would never be able to have the same level of influence and also like the cross tangentially. I would never have that in the UK. There isn't a space for it, you know? Yeah. It's just, it's a much, much bigger country with a much larger audience and a much more, the audience there as well, when it comes to topics of like racism and diversity, mm-hmm. equity, inclusion, like people broach the topic. I'm not saying that they're doing it perfectly all the time or that all the answers are in America because they're not, but at least they're willing to have the conversations. They have the hard conversations and it, for the most part, you can see it. Like you see the racist places, you see the racist people. They're not really hiding anything, right? Whereas my experience in the UK has been this kind of thin veil of systemic racism that is just kind of this undercurrent to everything that nobody will admit. You know, even mm. the government <laughs> yeah. recently published a report that said there was no such thing as institutional racism in the in the police force and stuff. And it's like, are you kidding? (laughs) We all know that it's there. We've all seen it. Most of us have experienced it. Like, how can you lie like this? And then to say things like, 
you know, it's not institutional racism. The real the problems here are poverty and crime. And it's like you you don't understand the relationship between all of these things. Are you stupid? When you said before about being sort of sugarcoated for or, or tempered, do, did you mean that you were sort of in this country mm. trying to see be sort of the Ghanaian cook for a white audience? There's something in that. I'm trying to distill it a little bit. I think, well, yeah, you look, the the white mainstream media embraced me, right? Mm. Um, and I'm grateful to them for that, honestly, because, you know, I wouldn't have the profile that I have if it weren't for that. But as I said a bit earlier on, I think it's not without inherent problems either, because using me as the, and also calling me the voice of Ghanaian food, like the expert, to do all of that positions me in a, in a way that is good for me and my career, but it's not good for the culture and it's not good for the broader aims of what I'm actually trying to achieve, which is create more space for more people because there's mm. more than one conversation to have around this cuisine. You know, I'm not the only voice. I'm not the only person cooking this food in interesting new ways. It's definitely not anymore. Like there's so many people, but there's all, there was always that, that tension, but I suppose, yeah, it's and and that problem of like, oh, you know, you need to swap out this ingredient for that, and you need. They said there was a lot of like diluting of what I wanted to, how I wanted to represent the food. I probably, um, not probably, I definitely bent over too much for the sake of getting the column inches in a way that I wouldn't now. Do you know what I mean? Like when I was new into the industry and new into and doing all of the yes, yes, and people pleasing. Yeah, there was there was a lot more required of like diluting me and my brand and the food in order to make it palatable for people, I think. And there just wasn't enough trust in the consumer and in the person who likes to cook. There never has been in the UK just enough trust in people to be able to use their noggin and, and Google. And like, not everything has to be available in Waitrose, babes. Not everybody shops in Waitrose. Apologies to Waitrose, but it's true. But it's funny, it's funny how you say it because it's the same in a different way in like what I do in comedy in that people often think mm. you need to like really dumb down for an audience. Mm, exactly, that is it. And it's like, no, no, you take them on a journey, they'll come with you. I can do really queer stuff in the comedy store on the late show at 12 o'clock at night yeah. in front of a load of drunk men. They'll come with me. <laughs> I just need to work out the way to make yeah. it somehow about them at the top. And then they'll come on the journey. You just got to find the route. Yes, that's a really good way to describe it. And that's it. And that's what the cookbook is. It's about the journey, right? And that's why there's so much of me in there because it's like I need people to understand that I need to take people with me on how I've arrived here. Like there's a story here that you need to follow for this to make sense. But I also think that's the charm of the book because it's sort of, there's the, you know, it's part memoir in that way because you're like learning a bit and you feel like, you know, not that I have a, you know, a, yeah. a, a cultural link to Ghana, but I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'm seeing this through you and I'm learning this through you and you're taking me on a journey. And I, I yeah, I just think that's, oh, I so love nice. it when, I think it's quite rare for me that a, a cookbook will do that. 
And I think that's what makes it really special. Um, I will ask you our final question. We ask it to absolutely everybody that comes on the show. And I'm thinking of that version of Zoe when you were a teen that you felt sort of quite isolated and quite uh, different. And I think you used words like outsider and marginalised. And I'm thinking about that girl. And if you could reach out to her or indeed someone that's listening to the show right now, whether that be here, the States, we have listeners across the globe Mm. um, who are feeling similar to how you did in that moment if you could reach out to them and give them a little bit of advice what would you say I would say dear Zoe you are different babe (laughs) you are different you're weird you're a weirdo in the best possible way all the things that you think make you strange and weird and and different are, are all the things that make you who you are and you will see that who you are is what everybody loves all that is to say trust who you are because who you are is what you are meant to be that is it and if you can stay true to yourself love yourself which you will everyone else will get on board they'll get on board with you and your program and you don't even know yet what kind of influence you're going to have on the world okay i got you i love you Go forth and conquer. That's what I'm going to say. Go forth and get it done. Don't worry. Basically, to anybody who feels different. That is the perfect way. That is it. If you feel, if you don't feel different, then it's probably, you're not going to have a very interesting or enjoyable life because you're just like on a mono train. <laughs> Being different, feeling different is like mm-hmm. consciousness within you. It's like, yes, it's great. What a perfect way to end the conversation thank you so much for giving me your time oh listen absolute pleasure i love a good chat thank you so much for having me on that was zoe ajonia i loved that chat i really hope you did too buy the cookbook it's really really good and i will see you next week as ever if you want to get in touch with me you can i'm on instagram Susie ruffle comedy and i am also always on the email uh, you can get in touch with me hello at suzyruffle.com have a great week bye-bye